0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, a transfusion medicine pathologist and assistant professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Alan Jaffe. Wayne and Catherine Pricill, Professor of Cardiovascular Disease Research, Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, and Professor of Medicine in the Department of Cardiovascular Diseases at Mayo Clinic to talk about cardiac troponins and checkpoint inhibitors. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Jaffe. My pleasure to be there. So uh, this is kind of a complex topic. Could you kind of give us a kind of an introduction background for this concept of of checkpoint inhibitors in cardiac troponins?
1: Sure. Let's start by backing up and just talking about checkpoint inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Basically, what they do is that they increase the sensitivity of the immune system by inhibiting certain steps so that antigens that may not in the past have been detected are detected and processed. And what that allows is the ability of the abnormal antigens that are associated with cancer to be detected and to have an immune response mounted against them. And that's why they're effective. And they're revolutionizing cancer therapy. They're used probably at the Mayo Clinic at least in 6,000 patients per year as an estimate. So they're very commonly used and they cause marked improvement in mortality and morbidity in patients with a variety of cancers. The downside of immune checkpoint inhibitors, however, is there's some antigens that you may not wanna be processed. (laughs) So that immune checkpoint inhibitors can cause a variety of autoimmune phenomena that you prefer to avoid. The most common is probably arthritis and arthralgias, which may occur in anywhere from 10 to 15, maybe even 20% of people getting these checkpoint inhibitors and usually is easily treated. And there are a variety of others that involve almost every organ system. The most dreaded of these is if it involves the heart and can cause myocarditis. And we don't know the exact incidence of myocarditis, being honest, because we only see the critically ill patients where there is a reason to do either a biopsy or a magnetic resonance imaging, which is the way the diagnosis is most often confirmed. So it's said that maybe it's 1% of the people who get immune checkpoint inhibitors, but I would bet if you could do surveillance on a larger group, that it's probably more common, and that there are low grade types of presentations that we don't really appreciate. Nonetheless, the sick patients get in the hospital, and that's where troponin becomes an important adjunct, both for diagnosis and therapy. Often, it is the troponin that calls attention to the fact that there may be cardiovascular involvement. This gets a little bit complicated because as I'm sure you're aware, and we've probably talked to this audience about in the past, patients with malignancies not only can have cardiovascular disease in their past, and that can give you an elevated troponin if you have some structural heart disease, whether it's heart failure or some sort of cardiomyopathy or poorly controlled hypertension. But in addition, cancer may in and of itself cause some cardiovascular abnormalities. And so having an elevated troponin in and of itself doesn't tell you that you necessarily have immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, but it might call attention in the appropriate person in whom it's unexpected to at least look for that diagnosis. The best way to make the diagnosis is with either biopsy or most often nowadays we use magnetic resonance imaging which gives one a pretty good signal. And then the issue becomes, okay, how do we use troponin and how do we follow these patients? Because therapy becomes critical. Usually it's with high doses of steroids that become tapered, but there are other therapies as well that impact the immune system that people want to know about as well. The tension in this area comes about However, diagnostically with troponin, for a variety of reasons, there's several. The first is that although you can have an elevated troponin, and for example, at the Mayo Clinic, we use cardiac troponin T, and that may lead you to the diagnosis, there are other reasons for troponin T being elevated as well. Those include the things we talked about just a couple of minutes ago in the background segment of prior cardiovascular disease, or even cancer-related cardiovascular disease. But in addition, it turns out that we've noticed here, and this has been confirmed in the literature as well, that there frequently are elevations of cardiac troponin T in the absence of overt myocarditis, or when we think the myocarditis is improving. Our thought about that originally, now partially confirmed in the literature, which I'll mention in a moment, is that cardiac troponin T can be re-expressed in damaged skeletal muscle. We showed that some years ago. It's been well documented in a variety of different studies that that can occur your troponin T advocate, you would say, well, they've never sequenced the exact sequence of the protein. And you're making these assumptions based on antibody binding and on mRNA. And maybe that's not perfect. No question. That's a legitimate criticism. But I think the data are now pretty clear that cardiac troponin T can be elevated to skeletal muscle disease. And myositis is a almost 100% concomitant when one has myocarditis. And maybe there's a hint there to the etiology of the, of the syndrome. We don't know that yet because we don't know which antigen or antigens are responsible for causing the disease. But the consequence of that is that we've seen patients here who have elevated troponin T, we treat them We think the myocarditis is under control, and in some instances, improving by MRI, and the MRI findings of myocarditis can persist for a long time, but they can also go away rapidly. So sometimes they go away rapidly and you say, we're home free, but the troponin T is still markedly elevated. That's likely due to the fact that the process is still ongoing in skeletal muscle and causing a very robust increase in troponin T due to myositis. This was recently partially confirmed in a large registry trial was published in circulation from the group at Heidelberg. And what they did in these patients who had, they thought proven immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, that is to say they had a biopsy, or an MRI that was considered diagnostic. They then looked over time and they found the same persistence of increases in troponin T even when the heart seemed to be getting better. So they biopsied skeletal muscle and were able to show the re-expression of the messenger RNA for a cardiac troponin isophore. Now this doesn't prove it. It's not sequenced as, as the some would argue. So what we've done here at Mayo, and initially we thought this would be a perfect strategy and it may turn out not to be a totally perfect one is when we saw these sorts of patients, we would then measure cardiac troponin I. We have the ability and have additional high sensitivity cardiac troponin assays, including cardiac troponin I assays. And often the troponin I assay would be normal. And so you say, okay, we've done a good job treating the myocarditis. And around here, at some points in time, people said, oh, we shouldn't even get troponin T anymore. Let's just get troponin I. Recent data makes that a little more suspect because the same group that I mentioned in Heidelberg was doing a registry study and they published the data that suggested that in patients who were well-documented to have myocarditis by either MRI or biopsy, that cardiac troponin T was elevated in about 93 or 94% of them, but it was only 60% who had an elevation in cardiac troponin I. Now this was a dirty study in the sense that there were multiple different I assays, multiple different cutoffs used that made it very hard to sort all of this But it raised the question as to whether or not one could have cardiac involvement with myocarditis and not have a troponin eye signal. Mm. And there certainly are reasons you could think that might occur. One is, maybe they didn't have myocarditis that was ongoing in the first place. As I mentioned, the findings of myocarditis can persist. So maybe this was not the right diagnosis. Secondly, there were heterogeneity of assays, some of which used the right cutoff, some of which didn't. And none of that was as ideally provided in the manuscript as you would like. But in point of fact, you can't take a study of many hundreds of patients and show the cardiac troponin assay for each one of them. Mm. But it raises the question as to whether or not the troponin I could miss things, which could be related to the fact that there are many fragments of cardiac troponin I and T for that matter. It turns out that for the T assay, the epitopes for detection are close to one another, two to six amino acids apart. So that even if you cleave things up into the tiniest little fragments, you end up with a persistent signal. On the other hand, for cardiac troponin I, The antibodies are often 20, 30, 40, 50 amino acids apart. So as you begin to cleave up the fragments, which we know occurs, then perhaps you could lose the signal. And we have hypothesized, several of us in book chapters, that perhaps the fragments that are present in a heart attack, which is the ones we know and love and use, are different in the patient who might have an inflammatory reason like a myocarditis so it's at least a possibility if that's true then perhaps the fact that the troponin i goes down with treatment and looks like it tracks with the heart may partially be correct and partially be related to the fact that it doesn't have as high sensitivity for detecting the disease as might be ideal. This becomes important in the fact that the paper that I mentioned from Heidelberg suggested that when one had increases in troponin T that persisted, that the prognosis was related to that persistence to a greater extent than other clinical parameters. The likely explanation for that, I would argue, and I think, and this is what they argued as well, by the way, was that there is a skeletal muscle component and the fact that it is persisting as documented with increases in cardiac troponin T means that the process that undergirds this is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And if that were to be the case, then one could be seduced into thinking one is home free, whereas given the process is still ongoing, it may well be that the troponin T signal is a key one to alert people to the fact that more treatment is necessary.
0: For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit mailcliniclabs.com forward slash education. Wow. So you're really kind of highlighting the complexity of this issue. I think for our audience, just how this is really a very active, dynamic, evolving area, It sort of sounds like for the laboratory medicine component of our audience, right? You're highlighting, I guess, in my mind about, you know, if I get asked about somebody who has an elevated troponin and otherwise, uh, you know, it was a surprise to ask or inquire about checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And also you're highlighting, I guess, some of the changes on what might we do in a lab. So if I could ask you just to maybe re-highlight For the laboratory medicine listeners, how might we go about supporting the clinical practice in these patients that are kind of in this, facing
1: this issue? A couple of suggestions. First of all, we do measure cardiac troponin I and T in these patients. Now, it's intrinsically a little bit difficult because you don't want two high-sensitivity troponin assays with totally different metrics floating around your institution. So we make it very special orderable only in the special circumstance where this information is necessary, number one. Number two, and I didn't mention this, but I will, we're in an environment now where we're stimulating immunoglobulins in hundreds of different ways, both from vaccinations that we all, and I'm not criticizing vaccinations, but it increases immunoglobulins and checkpoint inhibitors, which increase the immune response. And we have seen some patients who have had false positive increases because of so-called macrotroponins, which are conglomerates of troponin and immunoglobulin. Now, mostly they occur with cardiac troponin I to a greater extent than T, but there certainly are such circumstances where T is involved and there is a recent abstract in European Society of Cardiology that suggested that even when these were troponin I macro troponins, that they had an influence on troponin T as well, likely because of interdigitation with the TIC complex, one of the common fragments that exist. So two or three things that the lab can do. Number one is, If indeed you're a large lab, and if you're a small facility, you may not be able to do this, but you could work out an arrangement with a larger lab to measure cardiac troponin I in the subset of patients where it becomes clinically important. And that is helpful. Now, nothing's 100%. So you need to be careful not to simply say, ah, I'm done if you get reassurance with cardiac troponin i and you're using t similarly you need to be circumspect if you get troponin i that is normal and you get an elevated t or vice versa so you need to be careful but i would argue that making arrangements to test for both in this unique circumstance that should occur mostly in tertiary and quaternary referral centers is probably worthwhile. Secondly, we ought to be ready to do troubleshooting for the analytic false positives, whether they're heterophiles or macrotroponins. The easiest way to do that often is to have a second assay. And I think most of us would say if the second assay comports better to the clinical circumstance, perhaps that's adequate without doing a lot of additional investigation, although several of us have written guidance papers about how to do those eventual investigations, Mm -hmm. when and if they are necessary. Finally, the field really needs a much more systematic approach. For example, is cardiac troponin I really not elevated in a bunch of patients with myocarditis? It would be nice if the study that I mentioned had been able to to do troponin I and T and all the patients that had the same assay with the same metrics, so we could answer that question definitively, that would be helpful. We then need to figure out whether or not if the myocarditis part of this abates and we're left with the myositis, whether or not we need to continue therapy at a same level, a different level, What are the appropriate therapeutic responses? So the laboratory can help by giving clinicians the tools, but there's a clinical part of this that depends on the judgment of the clinicians and eventually additional research.
0: So it seems like to go from here, you say research, I'm sure our student listeners' eyes perk up for opportunities. You're highlighting a, a role for the laboratory going forward, as well as the clinical team. All three of those groups are working together to tackle some of these questions. Is there one of them that's really, you think, top of mind, that really stands over and above the
1: others in your mind right now? Well, I think one of the things that we don't have and haven't had and we're going to try and remedy that is to know what people start at. So for example, you have, God forbid, a cancer question is, what are your troponin values? Are they elevated? Because it may well be that in some of these instances we're responding to chronic increases and it would be important to know that. Secondly, when subsequently, if we have baseline values, we'd be able to say, well, yes, troponin T is elevated, but you know, I is pretty elevated too compared to what it was at baseline where it was very, very low, for example, or vice versa. So that it would be very important to add that component to it. Finally, as we get better at troubleshooting the analytics, Eventually, it would be ideal to develop techniques that could look for some of these analytic problems on our analyzers. And there are several companies that are working on such solutions, which would be very helpful, not for everybody, not for every single sample, but for those where there is a real clinical need to figure out what's going on.
0: We've been rounding with Dr. Jaffe talking about cardiac troponins and checkpoint inhibitors.
1: Thanks for taking your
0: time to talk about this with us. It's
1: been my pleasure. I hope it's been uh, clear and helpful.
0: Absolutely. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through educational conversations.